This is GabNet, the great American broadcast network. Talk radio like you've never heard it before. So tonight, with a new Iraqi government in place and following consultations with allies abroad and Congress at home, I can announce that America will lead a broad coalition to roll back this terrorist threat. Our objective is clear. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL through a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy. that man, huh? George W. Obama? You know, as Yogi Berra would say, it feels like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? It's getting harder and harder to tell the right from the left these days, and I hope that you will join me on the Citizen Panel tonight on Rob Alfano's Exchange. Well, good evening and welcome into the program, Rob Alfano's Exchange. It's, uh, what, Thursday night and we're going to compete with football tonight, right? It seems like uh, President Obama finally got the approval of Congress on something. Unfortunately, that approval is on war and aggression. Feels like we're back in 2003 all over again, doesn't it? Everyone is calling for action. Personally, I don't like it. I think we're doing more of the same. I mean, we're just reacting to violence with violence. And uh, that's not going to make anything better. It's just not. If, uh, you know, something inside of me thinks that uh, this is um, the overarching plan of the terrorists. They realize that they have absolutely no way to beat us. Just power, right? Sheer power. So what do they do? They anger us. And then we react violently, and this causes a good deal of discord in this country. It also causes us to spend a ton of money, money that we don't have. We've got people in this country who need money, who need medical benefits, who need jobs, who need so many things, who need food. And yet, well, what are we going to do? We're, gonna, we're going to spend more money on war, right? So is it really such a bad uh, strategy to divide and conquer like that? And they'll bankrupt us at the exact same time. So it's 13 years to the day that our lives change forever. And on this day, this sad day, it seems uh, we're back where we started again. A different president, a different party calling for war on the evildoers. Now, I'm not saying I have any of the answers to any of this. I certainly don't. Uh, but acting out violently, we know doesn't work. In fact, you can make the argument that the last time we acted out this way, we upset that delicate balance in that Middle Eastern part of the world, and we created this mess and anything else that comes our way over the next several months and years. So what mess will this action create for us in the future? There's a lot to talk about tonight here on Rob Alfano's Exchange, and I want to talk to you about it tonight. Um, if you're not going to be watching football, you can call us on the citizen panel and I'm going to open up Skype now and uh, open up that citizen panel for you. 
uh, you can join in on the discussion. It's pretty simple. All you do is type GabNet Gab Live. I want to say GabNut for some reason. GabNet Live into Skype. Or more simply, you could log on to GabNet.net and uh, click on the Call Me button, which is at the top of the right part of the screen on the on the, on the the uh, webpage. And that works really good. Of course, that assumes that you have Skype installed on your computer. And if you don't, you can't, or you just don't want to, well, then we have a phone number that you can call us. It's 347-352-0079. Well, we have so much to talk about tonight on the 13th anniversary here of, uh, well, the worst day in American history that I'm aware of in my lifetime. And uh, we can talk about it. We could talk about where you were when 9-11 happened, when you learned about it. Um, we could talk about uh, your experiences that day. Uh, we could talk about the news events. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. So uh, give me a call. The Skype line is open. The citizen panel is open. And we're waiting on your calls. I can tell you where I was 9-11. I was working in New York City. I was uh, actually working in Rockefeller Center. And um, I was... Uh, that's where I was working, but when uh, I took, I was taking an express bus in, and uh, that bus left at about or arrived in the city at about eight thirty-four or so in the morning. And I remember as I was uh, taking the Long Island Expressway uh, into the city, you always have that be- that beautiful view of New York City as you're driving in. And I remember I was sitting on the left-hand side of the bus, and I remember looking over at the Twin Towers, and everything was good. Go through the tunnel. And as we uh, move through the tunnel, wow, that seems awfully loud, doesn't it? As we move through the tunnel, um, as we got near the other end of the tunnel, there was all kinds of commotion on the bus driver's uh, radio, yelling and screaming, avoid this area, get away from there. There was all kinds of commotion. And that was when life changed forever. We were in radio silence for a few moments in that midtown tunnel. And then following that moment, we were out on the other side, and um, and uh, we were. Everybody was like, "What's going on? What's going on?" I got off at uh, Radio City Music Hall, and I walked by NBC, and there it was in the monitors. That's all I saw was the the, the smoke coming from the, uh, the the building. You started hearing sirens in the city, um, and it was uh, it was just a moment that I'll never forget. And then the days. After that, the day, actually, you know, that was scary enough. I went up to my office. I was on the eighth floor of a building. We went into a conference room and we're all watching it. We watched the buildings collapse. We heard that there was uh, an attack on the Pentagon. We heard that there was a plane that was supposed to hit the, 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 the White House. And you're thinking, oh, my God, the world as we know it is completely over. This country is completely over. They locked down the city tighter than tight. You couldn't get in, you couldn't get out, no subways, no buses. I have a, an extreme fear of walking over bridges. The only way people were leaving that day was to, if you had to go to Long Island, which is where I had to go to Queens, um, was to walk over the 59th Street Bridge. And for me, I was, <laughs> there's no way. I, I would have, you'd have had to drug me to get me over it. So I stayed in the city till about four o'clock in the afternoon and they finally, um, they, they opened up the subways and I was able to take a subway to Queens 
the first stop in Queens Center, I believe it was, and I was able to get up and get my express bus. But the funny thing about that ride home, there was no traffic anywhere, no traffic on the LIE. And I, 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 I get out and they told me, just go up about two blocks and you'll see your orange bus. So I went up, the bus driver was standing there. He goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to North Shore Towers. And he said, hop on. And he took me there like a limo. There was no one else on the bus. I was at the place in about 15 or 20 minutes. I never got home so quickly. Um, But the city was never the same to me. And it was the beginning of the end for me in terms of why I left New York. I lived through that. I realized to be cut off from everything, your family, because I don't have any family in Manhattan. You spend your whole day there. Something happens because then the blackout happened in 2003 and the same exact thing happened. They didn't know if it was terrorists or not. So they closed the tunnels. They closed everything off. And now it's nine o'clock at night and I'm still stuck in Manhattan and I'm standing on a street corner and it's getting pitch black dark in Manhattan. Those two events were the reason why I said, you know what? The second I can get out of this city, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm not, I'm not coming back. I don't want to work in the city again. So that was my experience with 9-11 and then uh, subsequently to uh, to the uh, 2003 August blackout. And we're joined by Mark Thorner. Good evening to you, Mark. Hey, Rob. How are you? Uh, boy. Been a day, huh? Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things better to keep myself busy. And try not to look at Facebook, which was kind of hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I looked at it on and off. I didn't really post anything on Facebook today. I just, everybody knows, you know. I, I just didn't need a picture, or you know. I just stayed. I just wa- I looked at it. Where were you? Uh, were you in Florida back in? Uh, no. In fact, if you want me to tell my story, I have to start back in '93. Sure. Go ahead. I was working across the street from uh, the World Trades Towers in '90s at Three uh, World Financial Center, and I was working as a uh, editor at a uh, corporate communications department in a brokerage house whose name will remain nameless because they're a bunch of bastards, <laughs> and they're no longer in business. You can figure it out. Yeah. Uh, after living through that, I, I, you, I, wow, you know, I never thought I knew what terror was like in the city and having the joy of running across the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, 9-11, if you remember, was a perfect day. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was a beautiful, it was one of those rare times. Azure blue sky. Blue- yeah, Gorgeous. not a cloud, Nothing. perfect temperature. I'll never forget it. I'm standing on the B train platform in Brooklyn where I was living at the time. And it was my day off and I was going in to the city to visit some friends and to pick up a birthday present for my then girlfriend. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And my ritual was to get a New York Times, get a cup of coffee, and I knew we're on the platform because it's an elevated platform, it's, you know, where the doors would open. And I was just taking a moment, just enjoying the view. And the one building you could see from Manhattan were the trade towers. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. And as I'm looking over, 
at the tra- the World Trade Center, I see the first plane pr- plow right into the tower. Oh, wow. And by the time it read, what, what made me realize, you know, what kind of like got me out of it was I felt my pants leg was wet and hot. And I realized I kind of dropped my coffee right on my pants. <laughs> it dropped. And, and I, I'll never forget, I glanced down and I go, oh. You know, and I'm looking around and everyone else is just doing their own thing. You know, people are not seeing it. We don't hear anything. You don't hear a kaboom. Um, it was just very surreal. Yeah, yeah. I remember and, black cars and sirens. Black well, SUVs. Well, no, I'll tell you what was even seen. Because I was so used to this daily commute, what you would feel the platform vibrate. And that would tell you that the train is around the blind corner and the train's – well, the platform vibrated and I turned and I realized there's no train. I think what we felt was the impact. Of the building coming down or the plane hitting? Or probably the plane hit, but there was no, there was no train at, that was coming. Wow. What I did realize is that people's cell phones around me were ringing. Yeah. And I, you know, I just turned around and went home. At that time, I was lucky enough that I had satellite television. I also had, uh, I had high speed internet at the time, which was kind of rare at that point, especially in Brooklyn. So I just watched it all happen. And I'll never forget when the two, when the two towers fell I had to do something. And I remember going down, opening a door and just seeing the smoke and debris because that was going south mm-hmm. from, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't, you know, I just closed the door. <laughs> you know, I didn't go out. And sometime later, I did go out. I went to Coney Island Hospital to get blood thinking, well, uh, better get to the recruitment office. <laughs> Turned out I was a year older than, you know, I didn't realize they raised the recruitment age up to 40. I'm 41. Oh, wow. You know, in June, here it is September. It's like, come on, guys. It's just a couple of months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, but I feel the same way. This whole, the whole city, the whole city just changed and not necessarily for the better at that point. I don't know. Uh, I've never experienced anything like it. The uh, first, let me let me say, we're joined by Rick Horn as well, Charlene, who's been here and gone, and uh, Damien and or Nicole. Just right now, all I see is Damien um, is here with us as well, um, and we could use you, uh, Gabnet Live, if you want to call us on Skype. Um, what really struck me about that whole time, and what really put a pit in your stomach, was how the the all of the the flyers that went up. The days after it, right? All of the flyers of people who were lose, who were looking for their loved ones, and every, you know, you'd walk to lunch, and you, I mean, thousands of flyers in Midtown Manhattan every day. And then I was walking with a buddy of mine, and he 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 was just we're walking and we're talking, and all of a sudden he goes, "Holy shit!" And he walks up to one, and it's somebody he knew that was missing that he didn't. Know I had was to missing. go up to Boston that weekend to train an army uh, news officer 
but a reporter for the army, basically, how to use Photoshop and After Effects to, together in an avid environment mm-hmm. up in Boston. Just going over the Manhattan Bridge and just seeing the smoke come up and seeing a view of the city that hadn't existed since right. I was a kid, you yeah. know. I I, I, yeah, I was like, holy shit. Get, take, I get, um, and here here's the irony. I think this is the first week that the Amtrak uh, Acela was in operation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and the not-so-high-speed train. Yeah. And, you know, they're saying, hey, we're up at 150 miles an hour. And I'm like, yeah, great, guys. Um, Boston, it was like, la-di-da. Normal was doing their, you know, the marijuana legalization people were having a big brouhaha in Boston that weekend. And there were kids running around with garland leaves of fake marijuana. And I just wanted to grab one and just choke him. You know, it was just like... But and then this poor guy, you know, this army um, guy, <clears throat> I, you know, he was he was being deployed literally. When I was done, he had a day off to get, and then boom, he was going overseas. Mm. You know, so. But the trip back was interesting. This is I took now. I didn't take the Acela back. I just took the regular service back. Train leaves thirtieth uh, station, Boston. It's empty. And I wish I had a camera because every station down the line on the displays was 9-11. So what do you mean by, by the that? Time, by the time the train pulled into Rhode Island, some firemen get on. Next stop, construction people. Next uh-huh. stop, police. This keeps going on every stop. By the time the train got to Penn Station in New York, it was completely full of people who were going to walk down to and volunteer to train. That was one of the greatest things I ever saw. Um, it made me feel a little better. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can tell you there were there. I, it was a, it's a time that if I really stop and think about it, especially if I hear some of the songs, uh, I was working at uh, an adult contemporary radio station on Long Island. And uh, we were playing songs like Faith Hill's, um, oh, I can't think of the song right now. But every time I hear that song, it just takes me right back. And I get that pit in my stomach, um, you know, that, that, that horrible feeling. But there was some amazing things to come out of it. The radio station I worked at was the number one station on the island, WALK. And um, that, that, that weekend, it happened on a Tuesday, that weekend... They decided to do a, I think, three days live on the air from, I think it was Smith Haven Mall or some mall on Long Island. And the idea was we weren't going to play music. We were just going to have, we were going to raise money and we were going to have a community. We were going to, we were going to get together and we sang songs and we all told stories and people waited on lines. I mean, when you got there for your shift, all you did was you held a microphone and there were long lines of people. And they would come up to you and you'd have children coming up to you with their with their piggy banks, emptying them into, you know, bigger vats of money. We collected. uh, I don't remember. It's 14 years ago now, 13 years ago. I don't remember exactly. We collected a ton of money and you heard stories. Parents would come with their children and and the, the kids would say, you know, we were saving this money to go to Disney World, but that doesn't seem like it really makes a whole hell of a lot of sense right now. We want to donate this money. That made me feel good. To 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 it was community. 
It was really community, and that really felt special. So out of that, when I think of all of the, the pit in my stomach for everything else, that makes me feel better about it, because there is some good that always comes out of tragedy. But uh, I, what do you think of, um, you know, the open that I play there, that little bit of, um, of uh, if you didn't hear it, it was what the president said last night, that we're going to go in there and we're going to uh, decimate ISIL. And to me, he sounded like George W. Bush. And this, you know, it, 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 he's uh, I mean, we're, we're going it's like 2003, 2002 all over again, isn't it? It's it's everybody's spun up. We're going to go and we're going to have all this violence to, to reacting to a few people. getting. I mean, yeah, I'm not, look, I feel terrible for the families of the people who were beheaded and the things that happened. These people are horrible what they do. But. Are, are we going to go back I, and do the same thing again and, and, and cause more issues? I, I don't think he's going to do the same thing again. Um, you know, we're not going to go in there, apparently, with, with uh, boots on the ground other than a few advisors. I, th- I think it, he's, he's playing it cautiously. And I, I honestly think he's doing, it, doing the right thing here. You need to do something to, to, uh, uh, to put a, a dent in these guys, and the best way is with air power, drones, whatever it's going to take. You're gonna you're gonna injure some innocent people, but you're gonna injure far fewer innocent people by doing this than you will with a with a, an invasion of some sort. And an invasion would be counterproductive. Um, and the key is we've got to get other countries involved in this as well because. ISIL or ISIS, however you want to call them, is a threat to every country in that region, you know, including all of the, the Sunni uh, countries there. These guys are just bad news for everybody. Why aren't we just one of the participants in the UN forces? Well, I guess somebody's got to take the lead. And, and, and I, I honestly think some of what Obama said last night is politically motivated and how he's coming off. Because, you know, the sad part is... Um, I was listening to Bernie Sanders today and, um, you know, he he said, I'm at least happy with somebody who's deliberate, uh, you know, thoughtful and not just rushing into this. But I I think also what's happened is Obama has never really learned the art of of, um, how to manipulate the press, if you want to call it that, you know, and how to get people on on his side. He's he's really an amateur at that. Mm -hmm. And... um, He's got to play this little game. And I, I, I honestly, you know, of, of, you know, I'm a warlike guy and I'm going to go in and beat, you know, kill everybody in there. And I think that's part of the game he's playing right now. I don't know. Game. <laughs> it's politics. Well, I think I think that that's actively what Obama's trying to avoid. You know, you, you, you know, you say and I agree that he's not very good at this stuff, but I think he was really trying to avoid having to do that in the first place. You know, I think he's actively trying to do a different way of doing it. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know how successful it's being, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually the stuff that he's done, even if you look at the, the, the things that he's done, uh, regarding Al Qaeda and what we just did in Somalia, he's actually been fairly effective at, at getting to their command structure and and taken out a lot of people. You can disagree with the fact that you may not think uh, it's proper to send drones and missiles after people. Uh, it's far better than, than sending in troops, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think you can't send troops in there. You're just going to get mired down in a no-win situation. And, well, and this is about is, the only way. The problem who, is who we're not we talking fighting? about the... 
we're not talking about the armed forces of a specific country. Yeah. We're talking about some people who are basically, they spend their entire time in hiding. They, they do, um, you know, clandestine attacks and things like that. You know, it's not like we can just target the country of Syria and then take out all of their strategic locations. You know, right. that would be pretty easy. Exactly. You know, and, but but we can't really do that. So I don't know what these goals are about. How how does how does Obama and and the administration think that they're gonna do what they're talking about? You know, they basically said. I mean, Obama said we're gonna hunt down ISIL wherever they may be, which you know kind of sounds to me like we're gonna bomb whoever the hell we feel like. You know, if we think that ISIL is there, you can expect to be bombed. Well, he and, did get Osama bin Laden. You know, and he's taken out quite a few other guys that way. After after how many years of fighting That's in not Afghanistan? That's the point. The point these guys aren't, they're not standing out in public going, come on, come on, come get me. You know, it, it requires a lot of intelligence. And, and what Obama said was, basically, you've got, you can run, but you can't hide. We're going to catch up to you sooner or later. And he's actually done that. So okay. you don't, it, yeah. So you don't expect there to be a a, a big uh, – these are going to be short little bursts and, and like surgical procedures to get this done. It's not – I mean unless – yeah, for, for the most part. But I, and there, there could be based on some intelligence. Part of – the biggest problem is you got to get the Iraqi army, what there is of it. I mean they, they have um, the elite divisions that have had success fighting against ISIL. But the problem is those guys are tired. They've been fighting for months. The remainder of the Iraqi army, which we tore apart when we first went in there under Bush, you know, those guys just up and ran. They outnumbered these guys. They outgunned these guys. And now they've got the weapons that we provided the Iraqi army. And, and that's what's got to get taken out. Um, it's a process, you know, and you need help. As far as Syria goes, you can't just start bombing people in Syria. You don't even know who the hell you're bombing. Right. Exactly. So, 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 uh, that's why I go back to what problems are, gonna, are we going to create for ourselves 10 years from now? When we look back at, at the, at the, at the previous war, you can say that a lot of this is, is we caused. Yeah, we caused it all. We broke it. Right. Because we didn't do it right from the beginning. That's why. Yeah. I, I don't think or... it was the right way to do it. And, I mean, yeah, it there is. Was... Unfortunately, there, unfortunately, you know, this goes back to, Bush's uh, W speech, and I'll preface this by saying I was not a big supporter and very critical of W. When he went before Congress that televised, I'm like, here it is, pal. This is your FDR speech. Make it or break it. I I was expecting to hear declaration of war, asking Congress for powers. We got none of that. We got jargon. But against whom? A declaration of war against whom? Well, evildoers, evildoers. Exactly. You know, you know, I mean, that's and, exactly and, it. Exactly. You have to be a nation <laughs> for us to declare war against. You. I was waiting for Obama to say evildoers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least he mentioned going to Congress to grant power, which is some. Well, you know, he has all, to say that now. He's got a lawsuit against nothing, them. Hearing nothing but jargon out of W's mouth. And I was like, this is not how you do things. And. Well, the problem is you—you you, as bad as a bad a guy as Saddam Hussein was, he at least kept order in that country to some extent, and 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 Bush Senior understood that, which is why he didn't 
go into uh, Iraq and, and and go after Saddam. I mean, do you think um, it's did, – did you hear my little uh, rant at the very top of the show? Do you think it's possible that these guys realize, these, these, these terrorists realize that you can't beat us in any conventional way? You've got to come at us the way they're doing it. They're dividing us. They're conquering us. They're making yeah, us – they're bankrupting us. Rob, and, they, and then 10 years later, they do it again. And like, all right. So they're pulling out now. They're trying to recover their economy. Let's piss them off again. Let's divide them further. Let's, you know, uh, I mean, it's just, it's madness. It's madness. Yeah, I mean, that, you have two options. You can either nuke the whole damn place, which right. would be insanity. All right. Because that's the only way you're going to put an end to everybody there. Right. Um, you know, which is just insane. Sure. You can't do that. So what do you do? You have to you have to fight a long term struggle and you take these guys out a little at a time. And that's all you can really do. And, <laughs> and anybody who wants to do anything else is just fooling themselves. It's all false bravado. It's meaningless. Yeah. But but we okay. got rid of you can arguably say we got we really decimated Al Qaeda. Right. Well, we changed the nature of Al Qaeda. We changed it's never going to go away. Right. They've spread out. And, and, and now instead of a, like a central command structure, they're all the little cells and they've spread throughout. It's just they've changed their nature. They're chameleons and they adapt to the yeah. situation. But so they have a pattern. That's, that's the one thing that are. you have to watch the patterns on how they operate. And it's then after a while, it becomes quite predictable. And it's something that can be followed. And I think that's what our military and our intelligence had to learn. Okay. And, it, and, and we did that. And we're back to square one again. Because yeah, but we've also did, been pretty successful at not being attacked in this country. Right. So we are doing something right. Um, you know, and the problem, I think the problem is people expect this to be like World War II when we went it's after not, Hitler. No. And right, exactly. You, you, because, exactly, Mark. You know, we had the ten, there were 10 million soldiers. Right. Now, what did I say a couple of nights ago? The army has a little over 500,000 people running their whole shebang. That's it. A half a million. It's like, whoa, that's kind of spreading our assets a little thin there, you know? No, no, but what I, what I meant was, you know, people expect us, you know, you go in, you vanquish the enemy, and now you're the winner, and, and that's it. This is not that type of a situation. It never will be. And, and you know, you get guys enemy. like John McCain, yeah, we got to send more boots in, or blah, 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 and let's arm everybody. Well, guess what? Look what happened when we armed the, the, the fight of the Mujahideen when Russia was in Afghanistan. Guess who we armed? Al-Qaeda, Al essentially. And we're about you to know, arm more people here, aren't right, we? Exactly. We did the same thing. We armed the, what we made of the Iraqi army. And guess who has those weapons now? Mm -hmm. ISIS. That's the, what that's, I see is the biggest problem here is that basically everyone we're talking about, it doesn't even matter whether it's Iraq or Syria or whoever we're talking about, everybody is either armed with weapons that we gave them or weapons that the Russians gave them. Right. So, you know, I mean, these people shouldn't even be this well armed in the first place if it weren't for our interference. <laughs> well, so there you go. We're, in my mind, it's like... We're just doomed to repeat history. We're repeating history. And it's only it's, 10 years later. It's, it's not even... Know, but we got to just stop the fear-mongering. Well, that's We're exactly not, it. You know, but, that's what's going on. And it's whipping everybody into exactly. this fervor that we have, to, we have to send troops in and obliterate everybody. No, you fight a continuing process of trying to eliminate these guys a little at a time. And that's all you can do. It's all about, if you, if you pay attention to the news now and, and social media, it's all about scaring everybody. Yeah. 
You know, it's it, it's exactly. I mean, when are we going to come back with the uh, the different colors for the day? You know, well, yeah. our, our big terror problem, alerts. Our biggest problem is that our entire military industrial complex has been built over decades to be essentially um, a World War Three. Uh, uh, armed forces, like as if World War II were going to happen again, only at a much larger scale. That's what our, that's what we've sunk millions and billions of dollars into, was making sure that we had enough tanks and fighters and aircraft carriers and you name it. But we're now fighting a completely different style of war against a completely different style of enemy. And frankly, it doesn't matter how many billions of dollars our armed forces has invested into it. It's completely unprepared for this sort of warfare. And so we're trying, we're the United States basically since, you know, since nine 11 has been playing this game of catch up where we were trying to, before we were fighting the Iraqi army and that at least was a standing army and we kicked its ass, but at least that was against a nation. We weren't fighting against a, uh, um, they're calling themselves a state, but even in his address last night, um, Obama said they are not a state. They're not a state if they don't have actual claimed right. territory. Yeah. And, and, you know, and frankly, these days, they're not a state unless the U.N. actually acknowledges them as to be a state. You know, just ask the Palestinians. They you don't know? wear uniforms and there's no, you know, there's there's no home base. They're just all over. Right. You know, I, I don't know. I uh, and 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 then there's a there's an, another story here, uh, and this just it's amazing. Uh, at least three young Minnesota women are now believed to have traveled to Syria to give aid to the ISIS terror group responsible for the brutal beheadings of the American journalists. The trio left some three weeks ago. Omar Jamal, a leader of the Somali community in the state capital, St. Paul, says that, that they intended to become nurses tending to fighters injured in ISIS, violent surge in Syria and Iraq. The news comes as a 19-year-old suburban Denver woman, Shannon Conley, who federal authorities say intended to wage jihad, has pleaded guilty to trying to help the Islamic State militant group in Syria. Abroad, police fear two young girls who fled Austria are inspiring teenagers to join Islamic State ranks after they successfully fled the country, saying uh, that they were going to Syria. These two girls, a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old, vanished this year from their homes in Austria, uh, from Vienna, actually, in Austria. Um what puts this in people's heads? Why are all of all three of these stories about six different women? I mean, is there, I mean, is that a coincidence? You have three stories and it includes six different women. Good question. Is, it, is there a reason why women are flocking to it? I don't, well, men I don't are know. flocking also. I mean, there are guys. Well, sure. And, also. and, so. As far as the first story is concerned, I, I just can't condemn three girls who want to go and help the injured, <laughs> no matter which side they're on. You know, I, I have to uh, uh, commend them for that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that all three of the stories you just mentioned were all women. I, I think you'd have to examine their circumstances as far as what their reasons were for going. Um, you know, were they Muslim in any way? Uh, is it a matter of just, you know, teenagers and adventurism? Um, you know, it's it's rebelliousness. Who knows? Or or they you know they believe this stuff. Look, there were there were, you know, how did how does any revolutionary group attract young people? There's something I guess sexy about it. Don't know. 
Don't know. I guess I was never attracted to that kind of thing. So I yeah, I mean, you know, you're disaffected for whatever reason, or there's I was a certain smoking pot sexiness and, uh, to it. Uh, <laughs> you know, radicalism in the '60s. I mean, you know, everybody loves um, um, voting for the underdog. Everybody right. loves rooting for the underdog. Wants to, you know, rebel against authority and and the status quo. And it's great. You want to go and you'd go there. Good. Guess what? You can't come back now. Or if you do, you're going to face charges. That's all. You know, why did Charles Manson have a family? Yeah. 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 Look at those kids. Right. Yeah. You know, so, and, 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 you know, the late uh, writer Colin Wilson, I think, addressed that in one of his great books, I think, The Outsider and Criminal History of Mankind. He addresses that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you're always it's oh, this is always going to happen, folks. Yeah. You know, you're it just blows my mind. I, 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 you know, they're Americans. Well, not all of them are, but the first two are from Minnesota. And yeah, but you know, you look at what was going on in the 60s in, in Europe, you had the Bader Meinhof gang, oh, you had right. uh, Carlos the Jackal. You know, it's just changed its nature. The shit's been going on forever, you know, and now, but the part Only of the problem is also the 24 hour well. news media now. So everything gets blown up way out of proportion. Let's scare the shit out of, out of, out of Mrs. Buttfuck in Iowa somewhere so she thinks the terrorists are coming to get her. You know, it, it's ridiculous. And the media – go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. My friend Larry Rosenthal came up with a term that's perfect. It's called media-induced psychosis. <laughs> and you could, you could add social in front of that, hyphen that. And, yeah. Uh, okay. That's that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody has got half truths, and I find them all the time. And then I go and I debunk them, and I just after people have ranted and raved over something, I just go and I post the link from one of the sites that debunks this stuff, and then it just dies down. Nobody says oh or says anything. They just it's the last comment. It's like the end of the discussion. Has anybody been paying attention to the uh, the NFL thing going on? I'm sure everybody has. I know. How could I, I know you not? That, yeah, you guys haven't been on this program. We've been talking about it the last couple of nights. Um, it well, only seems, because I've heard you the last. I mean, I've heard your show for the last few nights. Yeah, there seems that now there's the controversy. Uh, there's a contradiction between the commissioner and Ray Rice. R uh, Rice is saying that he told the commissioner that he punched his uh, then fiance on June 16th. He told the uh, Goodell that on June 16th. On the other hand, Goodell is saying that uh, that uh, it was inconsistent. With, the video was inconsistent to what Rice told him. Looks like uh, this is going to be bad for the NFL and the commissioner. It'll be interesting to see um, if this can bring him down. I think it can. Well, yeah, because uh, the owners, the, the the league's 32 owners are still showing solid support for him, but the group is prepared to act against him, potentially considering his dismissal if the investigation by former FBI Director Robert Mueller concludes that Goodell was guilty of willful and egregious misconduct in handling the case. That's what they, they always say. We're right behind you until they push you off the cliff. <laughs> yeah. They are actually right behind you, aren't they? <laughs> they already got the handout. Or as Max Headroom said, with friends like these, you don't need suppositories. Yeah. <laughs> so the other day I asked, I, I know um, uh, I know that Rick, you're a, you're a Giants fan, right? Yes, indeed. And you weren't on the panel the other night. I asked, uh, are, are, Mark, uh, Damien, are you a football fan? No. And how about and you, so Mark? Not, not anymore, Rob. Were you at one time? Oh, yeah. So what caused you to step away? The way it changed. 
Uh, it wasn't about being athletic anymore and how I saw these players who always should be held up against the highest standards just didn't care. They were mm-hmm. pissing on that. That's, That's exactly why I got disillusioned about baseball. I used to be a big baseball fan, and then it got kind of so commercialized and so much about the money. And no, so, you know, tell you I, I had very high standards about these baseball players. They were doing the American dream, literally. And then they weren't. Very so slightly. I knew one player because he was a neighbor of my parents for a bit for the New York Giants, and he was a gentleman. He was a damn – Zeke Moab. Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, sweetest man. He This was an athlete, mm-hmm. you know? And after that, it was just where, where are they getting these mutants from, you, you know? And I just – I can't get behind that anymore. That's not the way I was raised, how I was taught to play sports. You know, if you ever got to the pro level, it was a privilege to be that way, to be that good and mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And you always had to hold yourself to a higher standard. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not a fan of the in-your-face stuff. It's, it's you know. Well, it's, that's the new generation. Yeah. Right? That, They're doing it, it in it's, baseball, it's too. It's, right. it's um, right. you know, that's the new thing. Everybody knows they're on ESPN. They want to make the highlights, right? So, but I want to ask you, Rick, because you're still a fan, since you're the only yeah. one that is still a fan. And I had Charlie on the line the other night. We were talking, uh, and a few other people who were diehard football fans, uh, Jeff. Um, and, and I asked the question, you, you know, the, the NFL is worried about its reputation, right? They're supposedly, right? They're ready to dump the commissioner if it takes, if it gets to it. What would it take? I know we had the, a murder last year, right? We had a, an, an NFL player. Uh, it was a murder that an NFL player was involved with last year. You had the Plaxical Burris thing where he walked into a nightclub in New York City with a gun. Now he went to uh, Bloomberg made a, a you know, a, 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 they made a, a, a spectacle out of him just to prove a point. He went to prison for a while. What would it take for you to lose your interest in the NFL, which is what they're afraid of. I, I don't think there. My personal opinion is nothing can dent this Teflon, you know, uh, league. What would it take for you? Um, <clears throat> well, here's the thing. I, you know, anybody who looks at these guys and and, and looks at them as a role model is an idiot. Uh, number one, I I watch the game. It's purely for for the athleticism involved, and that's it. I, I don't think much of a lot of these guys. There are players that I like that I think are pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, I, and, I, and I love just watching the game. Um, I kind of root for whatever teams I grew up with as a kid. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of an ingre- inbred thing there. I, I just can't, you know, not root for them. And it's as far as, you know, the individual players in the game, yeah, this Ray Rice is a piece of crap. But, you know, there are plenty of other guys like that, too. I still root for the teams. That the league isn't going to turn me off unless I have to start paying for, you know, per game, in which case it's like, OK, have a nice day. OK, so so nothing it because it, it, um, Charlie said, I, I you know, I said that the NFL has become more like a religion. It's more like a, a it's 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 this ritualistic event well, that's the fans. I mean, you know, people let themselves get duped into that stupidity. When I was a kid, my father once told me I was getting all excited about – actually, I think it was a giant game. And my father grabbed me on the side and he said, what are you getting so excited about? What do you care? It's a game. All right? <laughs> yeah. the, you think these guys know who you are or, or if they did even give a damn about you? 
and he was right on the money. So it's it's just I enjoy the sport for what it is, and end of story. That's it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, you had your hand up, Damien? Yeah, and actually um, it segues right off of what Rick just said, which is <clears> – <throat> What? I mean, when I was a kid, I enjoyed football and I enjoyed baseball and all these kind of things because they were a sport. I enjoyed them as a sport and I enjoyed watching the teams as a team. You know, I grew up as a big San Francisco Giants fan and a big 49ers fan because that's where I lived. You know, that was our local teams, you know, uh, the A's marginally and, you know, the Sharks sometimes, you know, but it was about the team. It wasn't, and it was about the sport. It was about watching the game. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't about the individual players. And it seems like every time I watch a football game or a baseball game, they're concentrating on the players themselves and what they're doing, how they're reacting. And it's less about the game. Maybe that's my own perception, but uh, it, it's less about the game and more about the individual players. Well, yeah, it's gotten to the point where, you know, the color guy is sitting there going, oh, wow, he's got an ingrown toenail. And, you know, did you know that ingrown toenails kill 40 people a year? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I've never been a fan and, um, I, as I'm a huge baseball fan and I almost got turned off to baseball with the strikes, even the strikes didn't really affect the, uh, the NFL that much. Um, it's, and they had this, didn't they have scabs play one year? Yeah, yes. yeah, you had the replacement players. Yeah. So, I mean, even that didn't really hurt the game the way it, baseball, they, baseball realizes that they're in a vulnerable place and they're not going to strike anytime soon because they know that. I think football, um, it, you know, they're, they're, it's just, it's such a big money event. It's, yeah. it's, it's becomes like, I, I, I told a story the other day. I went to Sunday. There's a, a sports bar near here. I wasn't even thinking about football games. Uh, my wife and I were out and I said, let's, you know, we wanted to get wings and this place is pretty good wings. It was a nice day. So I said, we'll sit outside. We'll go out. We'll have, you know, we'll grab lunch. And then we were going to go furniture shopping. So, okay, we, we, we open up. I said, oh, my God, this place is packed. I forgot it's football Sunday. And the first thing she asked is, what game do you want to watch? And I said, none. <laughs> I just want to sit outside and enjoy the day. Oh, sure. There were plenty of tables outside because there's no games out there. But uh, it's, it's, a re- it's a ritual with so many people. Uh, yeah, and these people are insane. They're crazed. Yeah, they are. I mean, I've been to a bunch of. I've been to. Uh, I've been to Rich Stadium in Buffalo. Um, I've been to uh, to see the Bills play once. I've worked a bunch of games. I used to work. I worked for Monday Night Football a couple of times back in the in the eighties. So I worked at Joe Robbie, um, and I worked at uh, the Gi- Giant Stadium uh, once or twice, doing uh, you know working in the truck. Um, just never. You know, the sport never did anything for me. Even growing up, my father was a huge football fan. It just didn't hit me that way. So, Well, and you know, you mentioned how it's become such a big moneymaker. The entire sport is just a big moneymaker. And, uh, you know, when I, like I, to go back to what I was saying, you know, when I was a kid, the Super Bowl was just a game. It wasn't an event. It wasn't about the commercials. It wasn't about all sorts of stuff, you know, the, the tickets didn't cost $5,000 or whatever the hell they cost now, you know, question, you know, and the merchandising and, and and that's a huge part of it. And in fact, uh, 
the the uh, the Baltimore Ravens ha- have a program going now that you can take your uh, your Rice jersey to the stadium stores and exchange them for a different jersey. Oh man, I mean, <laughs> that's actually a pretty smart move. It is a smart move. I mean, <laughs> it is a smart move. Yes, this guy is. The, I don't think he's ever going to play football again. I, I no, I think he will. I think somebody's. Mm. It may take a year or two, but I think he's going to end up back in the league. I mean, Why Michael Vick. He? Michael Vick did so much more egregious. I mean, all right, yes, you don't punch somebody, but Michael Vick was 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 engaging in illegal activity by you know um, fighting dogs, right? And and every they, they, he's playing again, but it it just didn't seem like there was this kind of a lynching for Michael Vick as there is for this guy. Well, there and, he, are... and he admitted to it. He came out right away and said it. He said he was drinking. And he said he doesn't drink anymore. He said that's he why it happened. He also said it was a cultural thing, the way you're raised. And and uh, that was, you know, like normal behavior and, and something that was normal to do. So, you I know, also you, think that you cut a guy some stuff. It's the I video. I think that the reaction we've had is a cultural thing. You know, it's basically like ever since the Sterling thing happened, you know, social media is just going to jump on anything they yeah. see. Yeah. Well, and think- And... It's the video. It's the fact that you could right. go on your social media and people posted it and you could look at it and be completely outraged by it. I'm sure if Michael yes. Vick, if they had if they had video of him with dogs, you know, you know, fighting these dogs or brutally killing these dogs, he would have, you know. But, yeah, I, but most guys, even most guys, I mean, forget, let alone how women are going to respond to this. But even most guys, you see a guy hit a woman. I mean, that's like the lowest thing you can do. Yeah. It really is. And it's kind of it's right along with kicking a dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's you know, so so the the, the uproar is going to be pretty pretty loud on that. I mean, and plus the fact that you see the video and you can see this big guy just blasts her, and and I mean, she's lucky she didn't get killed because she could have hit her head when she hit her head on that. Yeah, it, it conceivably could have broken her skull. No question about it. I mean, it was brutal. There's no question about yeah. it. But he is getting. Uh, if there wasn't any video, this would be a you know a real short suspension. Right. Because we all know that uh, you know domestic violence is is a is a a scourge. I mean, it happens more than we'd like to talk about. And- well, you know, there's the theory that um, the whole um, um, the whole fur over the Vietnam War was because that for the first time Americans were seeing it on TV, you know, and it was broadcast kind of yeah. live to them mm-hmm. and kind of, we're kind of seeing the second generation of that. Now we're seeing it all where we can play the video on YouTube anytime we want and get enraged all we want on demand, you know, <laughs> it makes it impossible to get a fair trial. It makes it, you know, right. you're tainting juries. It's very difficult. It really is. I want to change the subject. I found we've got about eight minutes left here before we have to go. I found a story here that I think is fascinating. Now, this is a little long. I'm going to try to abbreviate it, but I would like to get your opinion on it. According to the uh, Cadell Last, a researcher at the Global Brain Institute, it is claimed that mankind is undergoing a major evolutionary transition. In less than four decades, Mr. Claims, Mr. Last claims that we will live longer, have children in old age, and rely on artificial intelligence to do mundane tasks. Uh, this shift is so significant, he claims, it is comparable to the change from monkeys to apes and from apes to humans. 
Uh, it says your 80 or 100 years is going to be so radically different than your grandparents, Mr. Last says, who believes we will spend much of our time living in a virtual reality. I think a lot of us do that now. Uh, <laughs> some evolutionary okay. scientists b- believe that this age could be as high as 120 years of age by 2050. I don't think I could afford myself at that age. It does yeah, that really that much retirement. But what's his basis for this? I, I you know, it's pretty extreme statements. Well, yeah. I just want to just mention that um, sci-fi writers have been predicting this very thing since the 1950s. Have, have you, so have, how is this yeah. new at all? Well, but it's just that this is a scientist coming out saying it. You know, one thing is science fiction, and you know, then there's that. This is reality. Um, he claims humans will also demonstrate delayed sexual maturation, according to a report by Christina Sturbens in Business Insider. This refers to something known as life history theory, which attempts to explain how natural selection shape key events in a creature's life, such as reproduction. It suggests that the brain sizes It suggests that as brain size increases, organisms need more energy and time to reach their full potential and so reproduce less. Instead of living fast and dying young, Mr. Mr. Last believes humans will live slow and die old. Global society at the moment is a complete mess, he said, but in crisis there is opportunity and in an apocalypse there is there can be metamorphosis. So I think, this is a quote, so I think that the next system humanity creates will be far more sophisticated, fair, and abundant than our current civilization. I think our next system will be as different from the modern world as our contemporary world is from the medieval world. The biological clock isn't going to be around forever, he added. He said that people could pause it for some time using future technology. The change is already happening. Today, the average age of which a woman in Britain had her first baby is rising rising steadily at 29.8. In the U.S., just 1% of children born to women over the age of 35 in 1970. By 2012, that figure has risen to 15%. As countries become socioeconomically advanced, more and more people, especially women, have the option to engage in cultural reproduction, Mr. Last added. And this is the end of this. As well as having more children free years to enjoy leisure time, he believes artificial intelligence will offset the need for low-skilled jobs. We may also spend a large amount of time living in virtual reality, and it's not quite... I'm not quite sure... um, most people have really internalized the implications of this possibility. It, it sounds, I mean, does he give a time frame for, you know, when this is going to happen? Well, he says uh, we could live as, as high as, as old as 150 by 2050. By 2050. I'm sorry. That's one, not far one, off. I one, think this is a bunch of horseshit. 120, but, not and, 150. And, oh, what kind oh, of? 2150. Yeah, we could be up to 120 years of age by 2050. Like if 20, we don't blow I, I the planet you know, here's, here's the thing. It sounds like he's relying on some sort of an apocalypse to, to create this. And he mentions the age of, of women having babies. That's got nothing to do with sexual maturation. And in fact, and, and, sexual maturity is starting at an earlier age than it used to. So yeah, and I, what I don't kind know of credentials does Mr. Last have again? Um, so this is a, a research or global brain, global brain institute. Um, and Dr. Last, Mr. Last, is he a doctor? I mean, Cadell Last. Yeah. He's a researcher at a global brain. Inst- at, researcher. At, at, 
a researcher. <laughs> that kind of tells me that his, his, his theories are about as valid as my theories for the future. And a lot of mine have come true. You know, I well, mean. <laughs> there's a, there's a great book that uh, I, uh, it's called the age of uh, intelligent machines. I think it is. Um, I've got to dig it out. Um, fascinating book that tells the story of the future through the life of this woman as she gets older and has children and, you know, uh, it's, it talks about bots that get that get uh, injected into your bloodstream that will cure cancer, um, that these bots can can metamorphosize themselves into pretty much anything. Um, uh, talked about uh, holograms and 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 there's a there's a scientific principle. And I read this book. It's got to be 17 years ago. So and I haven't read it since. There's a scientific principle about how technology and how, how it starts very slow and it builds. And once it builds, it gets faster and faster and, and faster. And I and I can't remember what the name of that principle is. But he, it's he, called the um, the oh God. I want to say it's not the Bose. Uh, um, it's the oh as soon God. as you say it, I, I will know it. Um, I, I, I got to dig the it's book. The out. one about microchips. It's uh, the age they, they of intelligent machines or something like that. Moore's law. That's it. Yes, there you Moore's go. Moore's law. Yeah. Moore's law. That's it. And it, <laughs> Thank uh, you, Mark. <laughs> this guy, he, he, he's predicted a ton of things based on his science that have all come true. And the beginning of the book, he tells you about all the things he's pretty, he's an older man. He's all the things that he's predicted and have come true to this point. And he's predicting all of these things and he's doing it in this very interesting story about the future and what it's like to live under those times. So, uh, I, I get it next time. Uh, I'll dig the book out tonight. I know where it is. Uh, it's just, uh, oh, we got Miranda calling in here at this, the very last minute here. Um, hello, Miranda. Hey, uh, I don't know if you've come up with it yet, but you were trying to come up with Moore's Law. Moore's Law, yeah, we just did as you as you called in. Yeah, could, <laughs> could not. Re- have you ever have you ever read that book, Miranda? The Age of Intelligent Machines, I think it's called, or the. Uh, uh, I don't believe so, but traffic's moving again. I gotta go, guys. Okay, talk to you later. <laughs> but uh, look at this; we're just about out of time here. Um, I really do appreciate it. I thought it was going to be a dead night tonight. I said, oh, my God, there's another football game on a CBS football <laughs> game, right? Uh, that that just, explains why none of the women are here. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. How's your wife feeling? How's Teresa? She's uh, she's better. She's getting there. She's almost back in, in good form again. Well, we miss her. I, I guess Rin, I had seen that she had been up all night or something like that. And so I guess mm. she she's sleeping. So she's normally here. But uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Mark. Mark, first time on my program. Appreciate it. And uh, Damien, same for you, I think. First time that you've called into the show. Appreciate it very much. Thank you guys very much. Um, I just want to remind you, coming up later on, or actually in just a few moments, it's Alex Bennett's Ramble until midnight. Then getting geeky with Miranda Janelle at midnight Eastern tonight. So um, we've got a lot of great GabNet programming on the way for you. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you tomorrow night here on the Great American Broadcast Network. <laughs>